And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm your host, Dan Hesse. Today's guest is Greg Graves. As chairman and CEO of Burns & McDonald, Greg led one of the fastest growing and most successful engineering, architecture, construction, and environmental consulting firms in North America. In his 13 years as CEO, employment and therefore the number of employee owners quadrupled, revenues grew tenfold to $3 billion a year, and the company produced an average return on investment in excess of 25% each year all organically. Fortune Magazine listed Burns & McDonald among its top 10 best places to work list six times, reaching number 14 in 2014. His best-selling book, Create Amazing, about employee ownership, has held the number one positions in the business, human resources, and democracy categories at Amazon. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I... No, you grew up, I think it was in Southeast South Dakota. My father grew up in Northeast Nebraska, and you could look across the river to the big city, which was Yankton, South Dakota. So I kind of know that neck of the woods. Tell our audience briefly kind of how you went from small town South Dakota to all the way to the major met- metropolis of Kansas City. Thanks, Dan. Deanne and I both grew up in rural South Dakota. So about as rural as you can get. Uh, both, All four of our parents were one generation off the farm, literally. In fact, Deanna's grandfather was one generation out of the gold mines of the Black Hills, literally. And so we grew up with very humble beginnings. I was lucky that my dad was a math and science teacher. And so we always emphasized STEM even before STEM was born. And when I graduated high school in 1976, the 200th, anniversary of our country, my choices were to go to the engineering school at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology or the engineering school at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. It's the only one he'd help pay for. And so with $600 a year from my parents, I headed west uh, to the to the stepped hills of the Black Hills of, of South Dakota and four years later graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and uh, my wife and your friend Deanna. At that time, in the late 70s, the space race was going wild. Uh, Unfortunately, the nuclear race was insane. Uh, The coal and oil and gas businesses in America were booming. And so the economy was on fire and every engineer in my class had jobs from international to Miami to Washington to LA and New York. Well, my first job interview was the first airplane trip I ever took in my life. And so even though Deanne and I had job offers from places, exciting places like Los Angeles to work for Rockwell Aerospace on the space shuttle program or to go off on an oil rig off the coast of Texas, those places, they felt like Singapore 
to a couple of kids from South Dakota. And we basically took a job from a small firm in a more Midwest town right here in Kansas City. So what was your first job at Burns and Mac and how long did it take you? I know you were a young CEO, but how long did it take you to become CEO? And and what was the key to you rising to that position, do you think? Well, sometimes, as you know, Dan, becoming the CEO of an organization or getting promoted at any organization uh, starts with survival. You know, being being there first in the morning to make the coffee and uh, being the person that uh, people just you can't get rid of because they're too indispensable. And I started as a mechanical engineer right out of school working on air pollution control systems to fend off acid rain here in America and worked on my MBA at Rockhurst and got my field work in in Louisville, Kentucky, had three babies on the way. And one day Burns and Mac came to me and said, we'd like a return for investment for that MBA program and put me into a full-time sales role. I had no experience in that at all, but I knew if I worked hard enough at it, I could be successful. And they gave me 18 clients that Burns McDonald had never worked for before. And so in my first year, I sold zero projects. But in my second year, I got a chance. And my third year, finally, and by the time I had been working for those 18 clients for five years, I had half the company's backlog. And it wasn't from being smarter than anybody else or being truer than anybody else, but I do think sometimes it just comes down to hustling and out-hustling everybody else. And that led to several job opportunities for me. And so like so many people, I got promoted once when my boss got promoted. I got a big promotion at Burns McDonald when my boss got fired. And then finally, I got the ultimate promotion at Burns McDonald when my boss retired. And you never know in a career when those moments are going to happen. And so at the very early age of 42, I was named just the sixth CEO in the history of Burns McDonald. And to say I was ready for it would be an absolute lie. Um, and so I, I, I was lucky that I had a lot of mentors around me in Kansas City and in my firm and, and outside my firm. And uh, those guided me a long ways in helping me to prepare to be eventually to become the CEO and chair of the firm that I really love. So I mentioned some of the things you accomplished at Burns and Mac. Looking back on your career there as CEO, what are you the proudest of? The most important thing I am proudest of above all else was the day that my chief administrative officer, Melissa Wood, walked into my office and said that three years of our, you know, just bad goal had come true, that Fortune magazine had called and we were being named one of the best places to work in America. And this was the third time that we had applied. And at the very beginning of my time as CEO, I told the employee owners, this is the goal. It's not good enough to just be a great place to retire from, thanks to employee ownership. It has to be a great place to be, to spend your days and your career leading up to that eventual uh, moment. Uh, we were named 50th, and eventually, like you heard, got all the way up to uh, uh, 14th. If there was a moment in time in my entire 13 years as CEO that I'll never forget, 
It was Melissa walking into my office. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Greg Graves. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Create Amazing author Greg Graves. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart, or Stitcher on any device at any time. So, Greg, you retire, and you're supposed to have fun with you when you retire, but I think you spent like three years slaving over a book. Um, Why did you do that, and do you recommend writing a book to to those when they retire? I have... A lot of friends who are former CEOs of great American companies, and every one of them will tell you, never retire. You just stop getting paid. And that's exactly what happened to me. So after 13 years of running Burns McDonald, I made the decision that it was the right time for me to move on as the right decision for the company. And of course, they have soared to even greater heights in my time away. And Now I'm two CEOs uh, removed, which is really a compelling thought. I knew that the number one cornerstone of what makes Burns McDonald great was the decision in 1986 to become an employee-owned firm and to become a 100% employee-owned firm. I knew that America is better because there are employee-owned firms in America. And so the 7,000 employee-owned firms in America that employ about 14 million people make this country more competitive and they make it more fair. I, I had to do something to give that back. And so my firm needed to do something to give that back. And so I spent, I would guess, four to 5,000 hours writing this 65,000-word book, Create Amazing, and I, I don't look back in any moment of it with hesitation, but I, do, I would recommend to anybody to go in with their eyes wide open. You certainly don't do it for the economics, that's for certain, but you do it as your chance to do something important you know, past your retirement date. And I've enjoyed every moment of it. So can you explain for the layman what employee ownership is what's an ESOP and are are there different kinds of employee ownership of companies? ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan and it is an IRS defined retirement program where a company which can be 100% employee owned or can just have an ESOP as a part of its benefit structure donates cash or stock to the employee's retirement account And then if it's cash, that cash is then used to buy stock in the company where you work. It makes proven by years and years of research and by the examples that are all across America, these companies more competitive. It makes them grow faster. It makes their employees better prepared for retirement. And it makes America more competitive and better prepared uh, for retirement. The one key... You know, I'm from the IRS and I'm here to help you, isn't a 
a comment that we hear very often or that we would ever believe. But in this case, the IRS made a key maneuver when ESOPs were first created, and that was to limit the salary that could be defined for any one person as the calculator for how much ESOP stock any one person gets. So even though Greg Graves made more money than anyone else at Burns McDonald when he was the CEO, I didn't get more stock than thousands of people each year when I was the CEO of Burns McDonald. So as the company is successful, and it depends on that, then that wealth is distributed in a much fairer and much more democratic way. Can you explain what the trust is and how can a company convert from, let's say, owned by shareholders to an employee-owned company? How does that work? I'm working with at least a dozen companies right now, some public companies and some private companies, mostly private companies. And the average ESOP in America, in fact, the preponderance of ESOPs in America occur when an entrepreneur, a single owner, gets close to retirement and decides that they want to leave that legacy to their employees instead of their family. And in that unbelievable gracious move that company then forms a trust you know with a bank or another type trust company and they pay that entrepreneur or that owner what that company is worth but over time then that stock is transferred to the ESOP of that firm where the employees then can garner the success of that firm or not and it's really important that this isn't a given And it's certainly not guaranteed, but it is predictable that employee owners in ESOPs will have higher retirement accounts by up to 4x than people who work at just a regular, you know, public or private company. So it seems as though Democrats, Republicans, and independents all seem to support ESOPs and employee ownership, you know, what is the magic? Why is that, that they can agree on on something these days? Uh, Two quotes that I have in my book uh, come from the widest possible breadth of views. One of the greatest uh, supporters of employee ownership when it first occurred was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan loved employee ownership because it had to be earned. It is not a product of given. You have to earn it by being successful, by working hard, by your firm being successful, by it being competitive, and by you working your butt to be more successful within that firm. The second quote that I have in my book is from Bernie Sanders. Now, you can't get much more left than Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders loves employee ownership because when a firm is successful, the preponderance of that wealth goes to the preponderance of the employees instead of just a few at the top. And so for America, it can mean our firms can compete harder, our firms can compete better, our retirement programs for for the country can be more assured. But if you're a true economic conservative like Dan Hesse or Greg Graves, you want those products to be earned by hard work. And with employee ownership, that's the only way to earn. So does employee ownership make sense for startups? Are there investors 
or banks or financial institutions willing to provide that kind of, we'll call it a financial instrument where they're not taking, if you will, ownership or equity in a company? Can a startup consider it? Used to be, it used to be pretty tough. When Burns McDonald became employee under 1986, we couldn't find a bank to loan us the money until Crosby Kemper Jr. from UMB one day gave us 83% of the price. And it's why UMB has been our has been our bank ever since and why I'm still a member of that bank's board of directors. Uh, they came through for Burns McDonald in the clutch, and we always make sure we come back for them in the clutch. Today, thanks to legislation passed uh, as long as 10 years ago, but again recently, uh, thanks to Senator Jerry Moran, uh, it has become more and more economically advantageous for banks to lend money to entrepreneurs and to those companies who want to become employee-owned. So they are incentivized. Now, hmm. if the loan goes bad, the loan goes bad. But if the loan doesn't go bad, the bank earns an even higher return than they normally would because it was part of an ESOP uh, transaction. It is true, Dan, that uh, ESOPs are usually not right for companies that are tiny or in the very midst of startup when they need a lot of angel investors. Mm -hmm. Once a company reaches about the point of 50 people, those costs of having a trust and having an ESOP advisor can be easily uh, accounted for. Now, are some companies then just too big to become ESOPs? I mean, like Microsoft has a $3 trillion market cap. I mean, what are what would be the largest companies that you know of that can basically be, well, let's say either, you know, significantly employee-owned or all employee-owned? Yeah, so, you know, you take UMB, that's a $30 billion bank. They have an ESOP program as part of their benefit package. Uh, public supermarkets is 200,000 employees, and they're 100% ESOP. I write Elon Musk on Twitter about every other day that they should become 10% employee. He hasn't written me back yet, but I'll, uh, I'll keep asking We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Create Amazing author, Greg Graves. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentor's Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with former Burns & McDonald's CEO, Greg Graves, about employee ownership. So with all the benefits to employee ownership, Greg, why aren't there more employee-owned companies? Well, it takes, especially for an entrepreneur who's maybe built a company up, and it, it, it takes real resolve and, and, and a real attitude of duty to make this choice. It's not always the simplest transaction versus just selling out to some behemoth company. It's not always uh, it's not always the most generous transaction. It counts on the success, the continuing success of your firm. And in America, it is becoming more and more commonplace for larger companies to grow through acquisition. And so it's tougher and tougher sometimes for young startups or companies that are emerging, or people who are retiring and leaving that legacy behind uh, to make that decision to maybe take a little risk, 
but leave the company to the people who really made you successful in the first place. And so the number of employment companies in America is not growing as fast as I wish it was, single digits for sure. But the number of employee owners is growing actually double digits, which tells you that those firms that are employee owned are growing faster than the general population. So Greg, how is the culture of an employee owned company different from one that's not? Does leadership need to be different? Do you need a different kind of employee to maximize the performance of an employee-owned firm? Every once in a while, I would be astonished when one of my directors or officers would say, by God, we have no one else to give the money else. We have no one else to give the money to. Why aren't these people in here working on Saturday and ordering pizza for working at night? And I, I would always comment, I said, that's on you. That's on you. Culture has to be driven, of course, from the bottom and has to assimilate from the bottom. But it is your job as an executive to create the kind of dynamic within your firm that you want, to make sure that people understand the joy and the pleasure and the duty of the things that they do, to make sure they know that how important the things they are that, that they work on and that they're important and that, that we're good at it and that if we're successful, you'll see it, you'll see it. Now, um, ESOPs have the joy of committing that culture uh, as often as they want through dividends to ESOP programs or to, to the annual meetings that I used to have where I would get up on stage and jump up and down as often as, as possible to make sure people knew they're the reason, but, uh, Sears was had a big employee ownership program, so it doesn't equal success. It doesn't equal success. You have to drive it as an executive, and you know, Dan, that it always comes down to communication. Are you communicating in every way possible by voice, by email, by text, by brand, by billboard, by uh, anything else you can think of? And at our place, we used almost everything in our disposal. So some believe that employee-owned companies, it's kind of almost like communism. Everybody at a given level is treated the same. Uh, everybody kind of makes the same and shares in the rewards the same. But that's not the case in that my understanding is that pay for performance is a very, very important part of making ESOPs uh, successful just like they are in other companies. Is that is that the case? It, it can be. Uh, you know, paid out in a communist way if, if an ESOP CEO decided to do it that way, but I know of none of those. Mm -hmm. at, my, at my firm, we paid significantly on performance. And so at Burns McDonald, almost no one has a base salary that's equal to the base salary you could get at a lot of other firms in Kansas City or everywhere else that Burns McDonald is. But when the firm is successful, then we make sure the people who are the highest performers are. And, and then since these have is based on how much money you make, the higher performers also get the most stock. The highest performers also get the highest dividends. If you don't do that in combination with employee ownership, I guarantee you that it won't work. By the way, isn't it also easier to get rid of poor performers and that part of the culture is the employees don't want anybody around who's not carrying their weight. So they're kind of identified and you have a lot of support when someone gets shown the door that's not 
you know, that's not performing well. You taught me this, Dan, that the best way, the most important time to get rid of an employee is when you don't hire them. And so the the recruiting and the interviewing is the most important time to say, no, I don't care how bad we need someone, this person won't fit within our culture. But the second best time is right away, you know, immediately. And it shows itself so fast. And it doesn't mean the person won't work out great at another place. It just means they won't work out great at yours. And in our firm, yeah, the fingers got pointed fast to someone who wasn't uh, performing. And if you didn't do something about it as a manager or as an executive, well, guess who the employee owners were pointing at now? They were pointing straight at you. And so uh, for me, the most important goal of every one of my executives was zero turnover of your stars. And stars only leave an organization if they don't believe in their leadership. And so at our place, we were able to drive that nearly to zero. And uh, for sure, poor performers usually would weed themselves out or we'd have to take care of it the hard way. So you mentioned Sears, uh, Greg. What are some examples of really high-performing employee-owned companies and employee-owned companies that have not been successful? And, uh, and and what were the kind of the keys in your view to success versus lack thereof? Yeah, the best example of an employee-owned company that was a significant percent employee-owned was Sears. And it just tells you that any ownership structure doesn't make up for horrible strategy decisions by management. And any ownership structure doesn't make up for greed at the top or or when companies start being run by ego at the top. And Sears is where we all went for appliances when when we were young. It was the go-to place. But the lack of being able to have any kind of foresight as to where the world was going, it just didn't matter how you were owned or how hard your people worked. And they did a horrible job of selling at it. there are lots of great examples of uh, employee ownership right here in Kansas City. Uh, PBI Gordon is a great company that works with golf courses and, and places like that all over the world. But I can't help look at my own Burns & Mac. Uh, that was the 60th biggest engineering firm in the country when I became CEO and became the ninth biggest engineering firm a couple of years ago. About half of that change was we grew faster than the people around us. But about half that change was people who disappeared from the list, which Mm -hmm. tells you it doesn't matter how good the economy is or the market is, um, bad risk management, bad motivation, bad culture will always win out over the best economies. We'll be back in a few minutes with Greg Graves. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and we are talking with the author of Create Amazing, Greg Graves, about the advantages of employees owning the company they work for. So, Greg, do you have you know statistics that show that companies that have ESOPs, you know, even if it's not full company ownership, outperform their peers who are not, and that companies that are 100% employee-owned 
outperform those that are partially employee owned? Uh, if I could bring it down to one piece of research, it would be from the Rutgers School of Business. And they've been studying employee ownership since the 1970s. And they've done multiple studies over multiple years. And their last study was uh, during COVID. And so when COVID began and they sent everybody home, Rutgers fired up the engines because they wanted to see how employee-owned companies did in downturns. And sure enough, employee-owned companies had layoffs only 20% of the national average. But I'd rather talk about the, the good times. And so over the entire course of employee ownership, which began in the 1950s, the average American company has grown between 2 to 3% per year. That's not a surprise. Some a lot faster and some a lot slower and some the wrong way. The average employee-owned company in America grows twice as fast. Now, you cannot think of anything that's better for the American economy, right, than companies that grow twice as fast as the economy overall. How do you let employees know how they're doing each year, how the company is valued? There's no stock market to value the company. So if Sprint employees knew exactly how much their Sprint shares were worth because they Every could day. just look at the stock market. How, how does an employee-owned company do that? Some employee-owned companies are, are evaluated uh, more often, but at Burns & McDonald, we did a stock valuation once a year. And so on every January 1, uh, the company had a new stock price. Now, you don't know that stock price on January 1 because you have to wait and see how the economics turn out for the year. You have to go through an audit and then you go through evaluation that looks at other firms in the in, in your market, that looks at public companies that are maybe in your market and gives you a P.E. ratio, just like anything else um, on the open stock market. So at Burns McDonald in mid-April, our employee owners would find out how much their stock was, was worth you know, going forward. Now we inundated our people with information on employee ownership. So when they received that stock price, they immediately had a website they could go to to see what their account was worth, see how that was against their 401k. Every quarter we would do a dividend. At the end of a year, if we had a good year, we would do a special dividend. I did 13 of them in my 13 years, and they've done seven more in the seven years since then. So uh, they keep doing those special dividends. And immediately, a note to every employee, here's the website. Go see what this is. Meet with your boss. See how it goes. I used to talk about getting the employee owner to the woe moment. For me, that took six or seven years when I opened my ESOP account and said, whoa, my ESOP account is worth more than my 401k that I've been involved in for 15 years. Uh, for others, it might be, whoa, my ESOP account is now worth more than my house or it's more than my annual salary. And once you can get the employee owner to whoa, well, you have an employee owner for life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, communication, all the time, nonstop, how it works, what it works. And then you have to back it up, you, right, Dan? Engineers, construction people, employee owners of all types across America, you tell them to be conscious of it, then you better back it up with results. And so they're looking at you as management thinking, I, you work for them now, and uh, you better come through with the right results and the right package or have some darn good reasons why you didn't. And so for us, the, simply came down to communicating all the time. I also had a trick 
I would make sure that we had at least 25 year employee in every corner of the building on Ward Parkway in Kansas City. So that when we'd announce a dividend, I'd have at least one employee screaming, yay. And so all the other people would see. So you mentioned mentors earlier in this show, Greg, and this is the Mentors Radio. Have you had any mentors that have been particularly important in your career? When I turned uh, 42 is when I was named the next CEO of Burns McDonald. Like I said, I was very young. I'd never been the CEO of anything. I'd never been on a board. I'd never run an organization bigger than 300 people. And here I was about to take one over 1,500 people who were going to be counting on me on day one. Fortunately, I was going to be the new CEO of a company in Kansas City where they root for each other. And so I simply wrote down a list of names of the great CEOs in Kansas City at the time. I started calling them to ask if I could come in and ask them about what it meant, what it meant to become a CEO and be a successful CEO and then be a civic leader too, along with that, because it's the duty that comes with it. One of those calls was to Henry Block, who already wasn't running H&R Block, but one of, the, one of the great CEOs and entrepreneurs in the history of America, let alone Kansas City. Henry Block met me for lunch, and I ran out of pen writing down the notes from the suggestions and ideas that he had for me of taking over a new company. I'll never forget, at the end of that lunch, he said, so Burns McDonald's employee-owned. And I said, that's correct. He said, then why aren't you a better place to work? I was really taken back by this because it was Henry Block, right? The, 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 the most famous entrepreneur in the history of Kansas City at that time. And I said, well, I think we are. We're employee-owned. And he goes, that just means you're a great place to leave. Now, how are you going to become a great place to work? And I went back to my office, and I wasn't sure whether to cry, retire, quit or scream for help. But my list of 100 things began that day of how I was going to make Burns McDonald a great place to be, not just to retire from. You, know, you mentioned Henry Block when it was many years later when I moved to Kansas City as a CEO, he took me to lunch. And um, he was just rooting for me as a CEO in that city. Uh, and wanted to be me to be successful, and he was really quite a great man. We were we were lucky to have him. Ten years later, he called me again and told me that he was awarding me the Henry Block Award for Justice in America. And it's it's not the first time I cried in that office, but it was certainly wonderful. So, governance. I have a question for you. Uh, you know, typically, public companies have independent directors. Uh, and usually only one director who's not independent, usually the CEO. What's the governance structure for an employee-owned company? How does that work? Yeah, so since I turned uh, since my age of 42 now to the old age of 66, I have served on just about every board and every kind of board, private company, public companies, uh, not-for-profits that were small or behemoths like the University of Kansas Health System. And so the idea of governance is so important to me, and I believe is so misunderstood in America. And so for public companies like the one that I still serve on, UMB Financial, I'm the lead director. We have 11 directors, 10 are outside, exactly how you said, Dan, and only one is inside. 
At Burns McDonald today, they have six inside directors and one outside director. And it's very typical for 100% employee-owned firms to be the majority owned by people who actually work there. Now, there are there's every example possible, right? There's examples that are 100% internal. There's examples of those that are almost all external. But it is the ultimate duty to be the insider and still be on a board. Dan, you've had that. And it is it is very difficult. When you walk in that boardroom, they don't work for you. You work for them. And you work for them every day. And so the governance structure at an ESOP is very, very important for an ESOP to own an independent trustee. And Burns McDonald had an independent trustee for my entire 13 years. And when they showed up in the boardroom, they represented those 3,000 or eventually 6,000 employee owners under my care, and they were the boss. We'll be back in a few minutes with former Burns and McDonald CEO, Greg Graves. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with best-selling author Greg Graves discussing success and happiness. So, Greg, what is your definition of success? Uh, I'm a Maslow's hierarchy guy, I guess, Dan. So there's different levels of success in your life. Uh, just being able to provide for your family, right, to keep them safe and secure. Uh, but at some point, None of those really make you successful. Those are things that are expected of you. Uh, you expect I'm a, I expect myself to be a, a successful husband and father and grandfather and provider, right? But all of a sudden, when six thousand families or ten thousand families are counting on you, you might reach that point of Maslow's hierarchy where they're looking up to you or they're happy with you or they think you're awesome, right? And so that self-esteem moment. And it's very easy for CEOs, or may I say politicians, to fall into line of just wanting to be popular, when popularity isn't always successful. Now, it doesn't hurt, and it's a lot of fun to be popular, but it's not the final moment of the Maslow's hierarchy that we all learned about in sociology class in high school, and that's to be self-actualized to know you actually made a difference to these people's lives, that their kids could go to college, wherever maybe they wanted, that they could retire early, just like you were able to, that they could manage their kids' ball club or have the travel that they've always dreamed of or that they've been able to have the career and that they've had a career that's free of doubt or risk of what they earn or what they're going to make or that they can retire uh, com comfortably. For me, I feel self-actualized from my time there and from the other moments in my life 
And every time that you think you're there, of course, as you know, Dan, there's one more mountain to climb. So Greg, how do you define happiness? Um, happiness is a tough one, right? Especially for people that work too hard and that are always going so darn hard and, and it's easy not to stop yourself and say, by God, these are the moments of happy. And so I thought the happiest moment of my life was the day I married Deanna 45 years ago. And even though she'll listen to this someday, I can tell you that that wasn't the happiest moment of my life. I thought it was when my first child, Jessica, was born, or when my daughter, Kristen, kicked her first goal and crushed all the records for soccer in Kansas City, or my son made his first hole-in-one. My happiest moment is when a grandchild gets out of their car and sees grandpa standing there at our ranch property that we have turned into a grandchild's heaven on earth and runs to me and doesn't care what company I ran, what book I wrote, or how much money I make. They just know it's Gramps. And those are the happiest moments of my life. And God, I'm so lucky that I get to have them almost every day. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, as you know, we recently had our first grandchild, and it is a yes. really special thing and an incredible feeling. Couldn't What's agree with you more. What's uh, the old bumper sticker? If I'd have known they were this great, I'd have had grandchildren first. <laughs> well, um, Greg, you make an excellent case for why economic justice and reducing wealth disparity not only is the right thing uh, to do, uh, but it's international interest. It makes us more competitive, as you've described, you know, employee companies, employee-owned companies outperform their peers. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.